point I thought, you know, okay, I have this idea. I'm gonna visit factories. I'm gonna go, I'll have this pitch deck. I'm gonna talk to investors. I'll be able to pay myself in three months. Like everything's gonna be fine. And like none of that ended up happening. But if it wasn't for that kind of naivety and an idealized version of what entrepreneurship looked like, I never would have made the jump. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Arielle Kay, to our show today. Arielle is the founder and CEO of Parachute, a direct-to-consumer home essentials brand. After spending a decade in advertising and brand development, Arielle was yearning to do something more. She was always passionate about home and interior design and a super consumer of home goods, but she couldn't find a single brand that was high quality, affordable, or easy to shop. That's when she saw a hole in the market and knew she had the perfect skills to create the company she always wanted. So she took some money out of her savings and got a one-way ticket to Europe in search of a factory. After bombarding 15 factories, she learned about craftsmanship when it came to bedding and sheets, got pricing, and came back home ready to disrupt the industry. She spent around a year developing the brand, raising small amounts from friends and family, and launched Parachute in January 2014. In our conversation today, we talk about her aha moment when she realized she had to leave her successful career to start her company, the benefits that come with being a first-time entrepreneur in an industry where you have zero experience in, how she built a strong foundation with her customers and brand from day one, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Arielle. Thanks for having me. Well, I know we were chatting a bit about this before, but I've been an avid parachute customer since the very early days. I think our entire bed is decked out in all parachute duvet and blankets and whatnot, but I love your brand. I love the way you've built the business. So I truly admire the entrepreneur you are and excited for our listeners to learn more about you today. So appreciate you taking the time again. Truly my pleasure. Excited to chat. Yeah. So I'd love to start from the beginning. You've talked about how your parents were very big role models in your life. You know, both of them had their own businesses and were very entrepreneurial. So I'd love to hear a bit more about your childhood and how you think it's really shaped the path that you're on today. Sure. I mean, I think my parents just really encouraged me to follow my dreams and passion. You know, in college, I went to NYU and I was in the School of Individualized Studies. So I got to create my own major. It allowed me to test the waters and, and try a lot of new things. And my parents were always just really supportive of that process. You know, they they never pressured me to go down one path or another path. And I certainly didn't grow up believing that climbing the corporate ladder was the only path forward and the only way that one could be successful. And so, you know, I think certainly they had some pause when I told them that I wanted to leave my job and start a business, but they were really supportive. I mean, they, we had some real conversations about what that would mean and the challenges that I would likely face and the the time. And they pushed me in the right direction and asked, asked the real questions, but ultimately, you know, they were really enthusiastic and that really started at a young age as I was just kind of exploring my own identity and, and who I was. 
Absolutely. You, and we'll go into this a little bit later in the interview, but you definitely made some big, bold, unconventional decisions early in your career. But before the idea of Parachute came about, I know you had a few different jobs and you spent about almost a decade in the world of advertising. So I'd love to hear your career at that point, because I think so much of those skills that you learned at that point really translated over to the early days of Parachute and probably even the company right now. Yeah. I mean, I think when I think about my career and I go back, there was this through line of a real passion around storytelling and really connecting with people. So in advertising, I was telling stories about brands. My role in particular was really around a lot of consumer behavior research and really thinking about how to motivate, inspire, and connect with the customer. And so, yeah, that experience really did inform a lot of how I thought about building a brand and really what it meant to be a real customer first brand. Cause that's one of those buzzy things that people talk about all the time, but you know, there's a difference between talking about it and really really building that as a core part of the business and from the very beginning. So certainly my passion for telling stories, for building compelling narrative, for connecting with customers, for being authentic came from that experience in reaching customers throughout my different roles in in advertising and marketing. Absolutely. And you've talked a lot about how you just, at that point, really fell in love with building brands, which is clearly what you were speaking about. So you were doing well, and I know you've always had a passion for home and interior design, and you had a blog on the side, but at what point did you realize, you know, I want to get do this passion full time and leave this career that you've built in your 20s to go all into starting Parachute? Yeah. I mean, I think so. First, I realized I wanted to do something different. You know, I became a bit exhausted and just less connected to my work. I, you know, was feeling discouraged by kind of the just corporate politics of big ad agency world. And I wanted to have more of an impact in the work that I was doing. I was finding that I was getting pretty discouraged by that whole process of coming up with an idea and then seeing it in market and just the evolution of the idea and how oftentimes it really loses its soul through that process because of whatever reason. And so realizing that I was distancing myself and disconnecting from the work, I just, that wasn't what I wanted. You know, I wanted to be in a role and in an environment where I was passionate about the work I was doing. And I was actually seeing that work, you know, play out in the real world and having an impact. And it wasn't like I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur, but I did have a lot of friends that were starting their own companies and joining early stage startups. And I saw that they were just so passionate about what they were doing and so excited to be building something and so excited to be working late and missing dinners and doing all the things. And I don't know, I wanted that too. I wanted that connection to the work I was doing. And I wanted, I wanted that now, you know, it felt like now was the time if there ever was going to be a time for me to really go all in, it felt like now was the moment. So I decided that I was going to leave. I wanted to figure out what was next. Initially, I thought I would join a startup. And then as I was you know, in that process, the wheels started turning and I kind of had that aha moment that people talk about, you know, where I, my interest in home and design and my passion for building brands. And I saw this opportunity to merge them and to really build a new brand. <laughs> and I know this probably resonates a lot with a lot of the women listening. I mean, it sounds very similar to my journey into jumping into my own business, but that time where you're in this corporate job, you feel like you want to do something new. You have this idea, you have this passion. 
Did you leave the job to come up with the idea? Did you have a few weeks or months to think through what parachute would be or what did that stage specifically look like? Because I know I get a lot of questions all the time of people who want to do that jump and not really quite sure how those initial steps look like. So what did that look like for you? So I had my first conversation about parachute at the very end of December. I think it was like December 23rd or 28th or something with a friend who is an entrepreneur, someone who I'm still very close with and who's still involved in the business. And I said, look, I have this idea. What do you think? And he was like, this is great. You got to do it. You're the right person to do it. Like you are, you are a CEO. And in that moment actually was the first time that that even dawned on me that not only could I do this, but maybe I could lead this. I became totally consumed with this idea, spent the next, I would say, month holed up in my apartment, doing all the research in the world, putting together you know, some version of a pitch deck, thinking about the brand, thinking about what it looked like, what I wanted it to be today and tomorrow and in five years, and really pushing myself to learn. And I dove all in. I ended up deciding to leave my job in February. So about the second week of February, I often tell people that is probably a little early, but I just felt I was so consumed with this idea that it was all I wanted to do. I really felt like unless I took that leap, it would be easy for me to make excuses and give myself an out. And so there was something very symbolic of me leaving my job, announcing to friends and family, I'm taking this plunge and I'm doing this. And in many ways, it felt like it was holding me accountable throughout those early days. You know, I couldn't back down. I had to, I had to show something and that kept me going. Absolutely. And I know sometimes you need that courage to just push forward because you can think you're ready for the jump. But it's really once you start announcing it and you start putting the ideas in your head in real life, it really pushes you to go all in. And to be clear, I mean, I also had a completely unrealistic version of what it all meant. I mean, at that point, I thought, you know, okay, I have this idea. I'm going to visit factories. I'm going to go have this pitch deck. I'm going to talk to investors. I'll be able to pay myself in three months. Like everything's going to be fine. And like none of that ended up being, you know, happening. But if it wasn't for that kind of naivety and an idealized version of what entrepreneurship looked like, I never would have made the jump. So I am grateful for that too. Yeah. And that's what I actually wanted to get into next, because I know when you left in February, officially, you use your savings to book a trip to Europe. I know you had about 15 factories already lined up that you were going to get in front of. I guess a couple of questions I have there is you didn't come from the supply chain world and you know you weren't necessarily deep in operations. How did you even line up those factory meetings? And especially being a young woman, we had Sarah Flint here who was saying when she was visiting factories, they didn't take her seriously. So what was that experience like for you when you were just booking that one-way ticket to Europe and meeting with these factories? I mean, I did a lot of Google searches to find them. You know, I talked to, I had, you know, through a friend of a friend whose family in France had made window treatments, you know, I was able to kind of get in front of other factories that way. I mean, I, it was really just the hustle, you know, trying to figure it out. Some of these factories have websites, it turns out, you know, figuring out kind of, I also was looking at every brand known to man to see because some people actually talk about where they where they make their products. So that was a helpful hint too. But yeah, I mean, my the factories that I met with likewise also were 
completely, they were like, sure, sure, sure. A nice American girl. Yeah. We'll take a meeting. (laughs) And I showed up with samples. I had a whole suitcase full of samples, full of ideas, inspiration, things that I knew I liked, things that I didn't like. I wanted to know about certain fabrics and how they were made. And, but that whole experience, like seeing the product, seeing the machines, like getting tours of these spaces. I mean, it was eye opening and it was so, so inspiring. I mean, I think factories are cool no matter what. And that whole behind the scenes and, you know, looking under the hood is just such a fascinating experience. Yeah. It was incredible to have that opportunity to learn. And then I decided to work with one factory. I came home and, you know, kept that relationship going. And, you know, my first PO was quite small, but, you know, I kept in touch with them. You know, I think one of the things that I did that was really helpful is I sent them every press link that I got early on. I sent them kind of monthly updates just so they knew that I wasn't just, I wasn't disappearing, you know, that I was working on this. I had received some capital to help fund the business. I had gotten all this press. I had made my first hire. You know, I just really kept them in the loop and treated them like they were part of the team. That relationship, I think, gave them a little bit more confidence in in me and in the business, but certainly it takes years to really build those relationships with the factory and the relationships that we have today have taken, you know, seven and a half years to get to where they are. I'm sure. And even in those early days, I feel like relationship is even so much more important because they're willing to work with you for those smaller POs, right? You don't have a lot of cash to put up front. So it seems like the fact that you were staying in touch with them, keeping them abreast of what you guys were doing is just so important for anyone who's looking to work with a manufacturer. And what I love so much about your story is the power of Google. I mean, I have found so many things Googling and just researching and you go down a rabbit hole at like 12 in the morning. And I think that's so important to talk about because a lot of people don't start because they're like, I don't have any connections in this world, or I don't know anything about manufacturing. Very similar to you. You know, you just pick up the phone, you ask one manufacturer his thoughts, and you slowly build the connections with patients. So I love hearing your story about how you ultimately ended up finding someone to just take you forward early in the brand. Being good at searching is a real superpower. So, you know, you can, you can find anything. Yeah. Searching and follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And, you know, you mentioned earlier in the interview, you know, you had this glorified idea of entrepreneurship that you were going to quit your job, see these factories, raise money in three months, get paid. Clearly that panned out a little bit later than what you expected. So when you came back from those factories, I know, I believe you made a move to LA or you just recently moved to LA. What did your life look at the time and how were you really funding this new world that you were officially in? Yeah. So I, I moved back to LA. I'm from LA. I decided, you know, I'd been in New York almost 10 years. I was ready. I had been ready for a change, but there was a part of me that was very excited about the LA startup scene. It was a little bit earlier on in its growth. New York was kind of further ahead. I felt like it would be an easier market and an easier community to tap into. And also it was the dead of winter and being in warm weather was appealing for starting the business. But yeah, I moved back to LA and I was able to, you know, I wasn't able to raise any money from investors, but I did have some, I, my parents were able to give me a small loan and I was able to raise about $30,000 from some friends and through friends and that were angel investors. And with that capital, I was able to really get a website up and running. I was able to get my samples and then I joined an accelerator program. So by the fall of 2013, I had joined this accelerator program, which gave me 
as things work out, just the right amount of cash that I needed to buy my first round of inventory. It was one of those like in the bank one day, out the bank the next. And and that was what I was able to, like that's what I had to basically get the, the company up and running. And between that, it was a lot of Google searches. Like how do you find boxes? Exactly. <laughs> how do you ship products from Europe <laughs> to LA? It's true, uh, yeah. You know, I set up bedding and the products that we were, you know, started with were large. And so I got, you know, a storage unit and I made my own warehouse and, you know, set everything up in there and packed everything myself in those early days. And it was full on. <laughs> full on. Totally. Sounds like uh, my life right now. If you see people who aren't listening or watching the video right now, right in front of me is like my entire storage unit of all these boxes and everything. And on the other side is like this beautiful podcast area. So it's just funny to see the difference between the rooms, but completely understand kind of, you know, those early days of what you were going through. And I know joining this accelerator was really monumental this stage in your life, you know, being a solo founder, I'm sure that community and just meeting other entrepreneurs helped you. But I'd love to get your perspective because early in a business is so difficult, right? You're questioning every move you're doing. You're not really sure what the right next step would be. As a solo founder, how did you deal with those tough moments? Like what are some of the tools that you use that you think helped you at that time or continue to help you today? Yeah. I mean, look, you have to really just it's okay to feel those feelings. Everyone feels those feelings. I still feel moments of doubt and fear and all of the feelings today, seven and a half years to business. They don't just go away because you reach any level of success. It's completely natural. But in those early days, they happen a lot. I mean, people talk about the roller coaster of entrepreneurship. You know, in any given single minute, you can feel like you're absolutely on top of the world and you can feel like you're going to be the most successful person there ever was. And then you can feel like you are never going to make it another moment, you know? So it's real and you do need a good support system. As a sole founder, I really did feel like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. There was so much pressure and it was really hard to not have someone that was in the thick of it with me. So I, like I mentioned, I had, you know, friends that were joining early stage startups or starting their own companies and they were really helpful. I also made it a point to really, to start building my network of mentors and advisors and just fellow founders in LA and putting myself out there so that I I did have a community to turn to. And so, you know, and, and one of the things that I actually found was most helpful was meeting other entrepreneurs that weren't like 10 years into their journey, but people that were just a little bit ahead of me, you know, people that were like two years in, three years in that were still really connected to the stage that I was in, but were able to just remind me that things get easier that, you know, just because one misstep happened or a mistake or something's delayed or whatever, it doesn't mean the business is over. Just like help you get out of it when you're in it. It's hard. Those days are really hard and it's easy to want to give up, but I think allowing yourself to feel that feeling and then move on. Yes, I know. I, I know in a, an old interview you mentioned, sometimes you just need a good cry to get it out and then yeah, you're all good totally. afterwards or some yeah. rest, right? Sometimes you push yourself too much and little problems seem bigger than it is. And sometimes it's just a red flag that you need to take a step back, get some sleep, recuperate. So a lot of that definitely resonates. And, you know, one thing you've mentioned also that has helped you really push through the past seven and a half years of building Parachute, which is a much larger brand it is today, is the power of you just being resilient. Do you think that comes with time and being through all those ups and downs, especially in the early days? I mean, how do you think you've become more resilient? Because that is such an important quality to have as an entrepreneur. 
Yeah. I mean, it really starts with the passion that you have. I mean, for me, it's like, I knew deep in my core that this was a business that the world needed, you know, and as silly as that sounds, I really believed it with every bone in my body. And so even though the going gets tough, you know, I mean, I have raised money quite a few times in the past seven and a half years. And, you know, there's been rounds of funding where I talked to easily a hundred people and heard 99 no's, you know, I mean, and, and those are the moments where you need to be able to use challenges as, as fuel to the fire, as, as a way to keep that momentum going and to like, and to see through. And so, yeah, I do think it gets easier and that you become more resilient as you move forward, but it's part of the reason why it's so important to celebrate like the small wins, you know, and to, to be aware of just how far you've come and all you have overcome and achieved every step of the way. Businesses, especially as they're evolving, you know, they're, they're basically changing entirely every three months. And so it's important to say like, oh my gosh, look how far I've come in these three months. I've overcome all of these things. And, you know, I've been able to do this and that. And I think, you know, give yourself a pat on the back and allow people to help you celebrate those accomplishments. But yeah, I do think that resilience is resilience and flexibility, I think are two of the most important skill sets that you can have as a founder or just as someone that's, you know, part of a growing company. For sure. And one thing you mentioned, you know, you raised some friends and uh, small friends and family round, you got into an accelerator. So that kind of helped you put in your first order. And then I know you went ahead and tried to raise your first round of funding, which I believe you heard a lot of investors saying, you know, Ariel, it's too early, right? But you have this amazing idea. So what did it look like when you were pitching these investors early on and any lessons you have for someone listening today who might be in that same position with their company? Well, I think one of the things that you should do is always take the opportunity to pitch your business because it is such an important skill set and it really does take time to perfect your pitch and to really get that, just get that muscle. You know, I, I like cringe when I think about my pitches early on and like to be honest, like I cringe when I think about my pitches from my last round three years ago, like you just continue to evolve and grow as an, as a a founder and as an individual and you get better, but having that, like taking those opportunities to really get the business out there and ask for feedback. Like, I think you will hear a lot of no's it's inevitable. Like investors are looking for the reason why to not invest most often, not the reason to invest. And that's just the way it is. But I think the same way that I look at every customer interaction as an opportunity to get feedback on the product, like I look at every interaction with an investor as a way to get feedback on the business. And so being really clear with questions that you might have, taking that opportunity to ask the investor, you know, what they are excited about, what are things that they see in other businesses that are really exciting right now, just, you know, to learn and to use that opportunity to build a relationship and a rapport with someone. They might not end up being your investor, but there's value to be had in that conversation regardless. And then also I would say to just like do your research before you have these conversations, because especially in the early days, so this sort of like backtracks a little bit of what I was saying, but there are people that will take a conversation that really have no interest in investing. And you do want to be mindful of your time, you know, and, and make sure that you're not just giving your trade secrets just for the sake of it. So I would do some research and make sure that, you know, it's an investor that invests in a category that you're in or do any sort of referencing that you might be able to do on your own ahead of those conversations. But yeah. And I know you've talked a lot about 
just taking as much feedback as you can and always changing your deck, right? You were always taking that feedback and staying in touch with the investors and following up, which is very similar to what you did with the suppliers early on, right? It's just maintaining that relationship, sharing, you know, if you were impressed, like what you were up to, even if it was a no, did you, you know, in terms of getting your lead investor, you ultimately ended up closing, I think it was around 4 million for your first official round with some I of raised the- a million in the oh, first a million. Round. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And I mean, you obviously have had very top tier investors and well-known angel investors like Joanne Wilson, who I'm a big fan of, but what do you think it was that really allowed them to finally say yes and join you? Do you think it was, it was your relationship or they invested in similar businesses? Like, what do you think really helped you get those few yeses? Since you mentioned 99% of the time you were getting no's. Yeah, I think they're investing in you. They're investing in you, the founder, first and foremost at that stage, you know, investors that invest in like the seed stage or series, I mean, seed stage and pre-seed, like they're investing, they're taking a risk. It's always a risk at that stage. There's no guarantee, especially if you're a first time founder, especially if, you know, you don't have experience in the, in the category or in the business that you're trying to build, which was certainly the case for me. But I had this passion. I think I was able, once I was able to kind of shake the cobwebs and realized just how important it was to like really put it all out on the table. I was able to, to show people like what I was feeling inside and put that out there so that people could see, oh, wow, like she's going to do anything to make this happen because I believed it inside. And so I think I was able to give people the confidence raising capital. It doesn't always get easier. I mean, it can get harder, you know, then it can kind of get easier as you have more data and more proof points, but I don't know. Every business is so different. When you look back at your business right now, or you mentor new entrepreneurs in the space, like how are there any mistakes that you think they're making in terms of raising capital or any lessons that you've learned? You know, you've raised over $40 million to date, but what would be some of the lessons or things you wish you knew when you were starting out when it came to raising money? You know, I think today it's so interesting. There are so many also alternative forms of capital. There's so many strategic investors out there. There's so much that's so different than when I got started. So I would really think about raising money and why you're doing it. So many businesses and entrepreneurs I talk to today are finding ways to bootstrap or take loans or do things that are alternative to, you know, giving away equity in the business. I think it's important to realize that, you know, when you bring on investors, you're you're entering, you know, somewhat similar of a marriage. I mean, these are long-term relationships with people that you want to be on your side and that should be very helpful for you with throughout the process. So, you know, it's helpful to remember that You should be interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. But I do think, you know, really thinking about what you need for the capital, giving yourself some extra buffer so that you're not constantly going, having to go out and raise. I found myself having to raise almost every year for the first five years of the business. And it's very time consuming and it takes you away from the day-to-day of the business, especially, you know, pre-COVID and when you were like having to fly across the country for a 30 minute meeting none of this was happening on Zoom. So, you know, it, it can it can take you away from the business that really needs you. So I always now encourage people to raise maybe a little bit more than they think that they need in order to give themselves or think about like, how much capital do you need for 24 months? Don't just think about the next nine to 12 or 18, you know, really like push yourself to get enough capital so that you can not feel so much pressure about running out of money and really are able to be more strategic and take some risks and build the business you want to build. 
Yeah. We've heard that a lot on the podcast. I mean, my gosh, to fundraise every year in the first five years of a business that it major props to you. I know that is not easy to be a CEO and running the operations and pitching and fundraising. So I'm sure that was quite the experience for you. So fast forward a little bit, you officially raised that million dollars with the first round and you launched the company. You actually have a very successful launch. I believe you sold out in two days with your first product. How did you gain awareness in those early days? And what do you think really worked for you guys to be sold out at that point in your business? So we sold out in the first few weeks. We definitely leaned on public relations. So we had a PR agency from the very beginning. And for us, PR was really important. I actually started my career in PR. And so I was just a really big believer in that launch press that you can get and the power of that story that can come out. And I felt like we didn't have a ton of money to be able to invest in marketing, but getting press felt like the right move. And again, you know, this is seven and a half years ago. Instagram was not where it is today. You know, people weren't launching businesses on Instagram as the formal, like the main tool in order to get customers and sell products. So we relied on old school press and and media and it worked. And as we grew and started doing some marketing, we were able to use that earned media and help promote our brand via earned media. And, but yeah, it was all press that initially got us off the ground. Yeah. And to your point, it was a little bit different. Seven years ago, we actually had the founder of Brightland, which is very premium elevated olive oil come on board. And she has a very similar background to you. And she started the business a few years ago and mentioned, you know, PR was a world I came from. So I knew the power of it. And she really leaned into that early in the business. So if you come from the background and you know how it works, it could be a good option. But like you said, there's so many other ways that businesses are started now on Instagram and whatnot, which wasn't the case in 2014 yeah. when you guys launched. So exactly, that's, that's definitely helpful to know. You know, one thing you've talked a lot about, even from day one of the business, and it's a big aspect of the culture of your company is a power of taking care of yourself, right? And taking breaks. And I know you really push that a lot for your employees. I'm curious, you know, in the early stages of the business, How did you maintain that balance? Because clearly there's always something to do. You're always working, whether, you know, it's your mind thinking about stuff or interacting with different people, but how do you maintain balance in your own life, whether it was the early days or even as the business continues to grow? It's challenging. I mean, I think for me in the early days, I was so consumed and so excited about the business that I wasn't wanting to take breaks. You know, I was so in it. I wanted to be there late. I wanted to be working round the clock. It was really fulfilling for me and really exciting. I remember the first time that I went on a trip for a friend's bachelorette and it was my first trip away from the business and it was really hard for me to enjoy. I was missing being at the office and working with my team and all of these things. And I was so worried that something was going to break, but I actually realized then and in as I found my ability to take breaks moving forward, that it's great for your team. It's great to step away and it's great to give other team members the ability to work hard and step in and and get their hands dirty too. And it all usually is okay. But I don't know that there's like a, a trick to figuring out balance or, you know, it's really personal. I think it's so important because burnout is real and it's hard to recover from when you get to that stage. You know, you want to avoid burnout at any cost. But for me, like I've always, you know, found ways to wake up early, to work out, to do something that was like for me, to move my body, to make sure that I'm getting rest, to spend good time with friends and family. You know, that's very, it fills my, fills my cup. 
Yeah. I mean, which is really important, but I think you make a good point. You know, sometimes, sometimes in whether you're working for someone or working in the corporate environment, working a ton of hours, you feel very burnt out. But if it's a business that you're passionate about, the hours don't feel the same. You're working more, but it lights you up and you become so excited about it. And it looks like, you know, your normal day-to-day is relatively healthy in terms of movement in the morning, making sure you're connecting with friends, spending time with family. I think all of those elements just really help you be the leader that you are and run a business for over seven years, which is not easy, especially because it's continuously growing. So I think those are all great points. And yes, balance is super subjective. And, you know, if you love what you're doing, it doesn't feel like you're really working as much as you have, you know, maybe in old jobs that you've mentioned. Right. And I do think it's important important as a leader and as a leadership team to model, you know, the ability to disconnect and people really look up to their leaders for cues there. And so making sure that you do take time to take a break and to disconnect and to recharge and do whatever you need to do is important in order to build a team that also recognizes that they're able to do the same. So the culture starts from the top. That's for sure. (laughs) Yep. And, you know, one thing you mentioned in a previous interview that I want to say, because I think it's incredibly important, you mentioned there's no such thing as perfection. Don't sweat the small stuff. It's all about moving forward. And sometimes if you're not moving forward, you can get in your own way and be your worst enemy. And I think that's so important to talk about because I think a lot of people are waiting for the perfect moment or create the perfect product to launch. And I think entrepreneurship is all around momentum. I'd love to hear your perspective on that because I think that'll resonate with a lot of people listening today. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so common. And for me, especially, you know, you're type A, you want things to be perfect. You're controlling, you want things done your way. You don't want to put things out into the world until they feel hundred percent right. And I get that. And I've been there, but the reality is, is that you can learn and grow and evolve as a business and as an organization before perfection and that you should be testing and learning and growing and, Yeah. If you just wait for everything to be perfect. And if you like get so, if you obsess over any misstep or small mistake or blip like on the radar, it's just like, it just becomes so exhausting. I remember those early days, you know, the first time we sent out an email that had the wrong header. I mean, I thought that it was the end of the world, you know, I mean, I was just gutted. I had to leave the, I was going to, you know, it was like such a big thing. And no one noticed or cared, you know? And it's just like when you can realize that the amount of energy that you're outputting and the amount of stress that you're like putting like on yourself in those moments and what you could be doing with that energy, it's so important to like figure out how to take a deep breath. You can recognize frustration and then move forward and, and just move on, you know? And I think every early growing company is in the game of solving problems. I mean, that's all you do all day long. You solve problems. You put out fires. You figure out how to get from point A to point B a little bit quicker than you did the first time. You know, that's that's what it's all about. And so you don't really ever become a well-oiled machine because once you become a well-oiled machine, you're like kind of complacent. You know, you like want, it's supposed to be hard and it's supposed to, there's supposed to be mistakes because that's how you learn and grow. So I think you got to just get comfortable with that discomfort and know that most people are forgiving. Yeah. You know, if you put the wrong subject header. 
It's true. They won't notice. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's so many little things that come up and then, you know, I think being an entrepreneurship, you quickly learn, like you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and just knowing not everything is going to be perfect. There's too many moving parts to manage that. And I mean, even your position with a bigger company that's scaled, you know, you still are dealing with that, but in different ways. So I think it's just part of the business. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's important for people to know, you know, not everything has to be perfect and And you should just get started. It's also something that we talk about a lot today because, you know, we, we've gotten good at what we do. And I think everyone, it's easy to get to that place where you're comfortable. And, you know, so we're constantly reminding our team, that it's okay to to try new things and it's okay to make a little bit of a mistake and learn from it and quickly respond and figure out the right way to do it. You know, like we want to build an environment where there's an acceptance to learning and growing and sometimes learning and growing comes with a small mistake and it's okay. What would, I mean, I'm sure with COVID, there's so many stories that you have, but just looking back on your journey, whether it was earlier days or most recently, what would you say is, has been one of the biggest challenges for you in the business that you can share with us and what you really did to overcome that tough moment in whether it's your personal or professional life? There've been so many hard moments, but there's these just like growth inflection moments with the business that are always pretty challenging. You know, sometimes they happen because you're introducing a lot of new products and it really is shifting, you know, the way of the business. Sometimes we've had, we had moments or many moments, we had basically an entire year in 2018 where our, we just didn't have the right inventory in stock. It was just so painful and we were just really stuck. And it took us a long time to get out of that hole. I mean, we would, we could not keep the right things in stock and we had too much of what we didn't need. And it, you know, it, it took building a real team around that practice to, to get ourselves into a better place. Hiring is another thing that was always challenging just because I'm obsessive over finding the right people for the for the team and the culture and the fit. And but I would say things around inventory. You know, we now are in such a great place, largely because of the leadership there. But inventory was a really challenging part of the the puzzle for our first few years. Yeah, and it's good to know that you were still kind of figuring that out even four years into the business because sometimes it's even from my perspective, I'm trying to nail it. You know, one year in, not even one year in. It's just good to hear how it's this ever-growing process and really bringing the right people to help you fill in that puzzle is, uh, I'm sure, incredibly helpful. What are you proud of that a lot of people might not know about you? I think I'm really proud of how I am. I don't know if anyone or people don't know about this, but I, I feel that one of my superpowers is really just trusting my gut and my intuition. And I'm proud that today I still use that as a superpower and that I make a lot of business decisions that way. I think that's huge because we had Susie Batiz on our show and you know she is running multiple businesses and has gone through so many challenges and whatnot. And she always talks about all the one, all the business decisions I made without listening to my gut and sometimes listening to other people and has never worked out. So just hearing how you continue to lean in on your intuition and your gut, I think is so critical because at the end of the day, you're leading the team. So you have to feel comfortable about what is happening with your business. So I think that's great that you continue to honor that, you know, seven years in. So that's super, super helpful. And one question that we love to ask all of our guests on closing is wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has their own definition of wealth at this stage in your life. What does wealth mean to you? 
Oh, health today feels wow. like a really appropriate answer. Just happiness, you know, like I'm a pretty simple person when it comes to just, you know, I just enjoy being happy and being able to do what I love every day and having two beautiful kids that keep me on my toes. So precious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think money can only take you so far, but finding real joy in the simple things is really what life's all about. It's so true. Well, Arielle, I so appreciate you taking the time to join us today. It was such an honor to have you on. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire. Empire.